0: Turn, if you will, to Luke chapter 16. We're going to look at a parable that that is a little perplexing, but is so rich in its application. I was privileged yesterday to be in the home of friends. Uh, I was there for a baby shower, and I don't always get to go to baby showers. My wife often goes, and she mysteriously brings home this bounty of food. And for those of you who don't know, there's actually more food at the shower than even what our wives bring home. And it it was remarkable, but as as I sat there and I was observing and we were gathered and we just, this space was created where there was, uh, we laughed together, uh, we we, we spoke, obviously we conversed together, we ate together, and there was just kind of this tangible presence of love in the room. And... uh, as I was taking a moment to myself, sipping my coconut flavored HTO iced tea, I looked around the room and and I had this profound thought that there are so many people in this room that would be here for Jen and I in an instant. If we were in crisis, that is one of the rarely talked about, but profound blessings for being part of a church community is that over time through potlucks, through study groups, through community groups, through fellowship events. You build this network of friendships, but it's deeper than friendships. You're building a network of other people who are seeking to be faithful to Jesus just like you are. And that creates a camaraderie and a family atmosphere that is pr- that is profound and unmatched in most other social circles. And as, as I was... Thinking about that, my mind went back to this parable that I knew we would be talking about the next day. Uh, uh, and I was reminded as I thought about these two, is that how can this parable about a shrewd manager and about money have such a profound implication for the relationships that we're in? And I realized we're experiencing what Jesus is talking about in this parable life comes down to the investments that we make in one another. And I know the majority of us are introverts. I mean, that's just statistically true. And uh, and sometimes we, we can put these events on the calendar. And if we just look at the calendar and we're exhausted or we've been really busy, it's easy to see these things as maybe um, obligations in the course of life. And I just was reminded yesterday, this isn't a social obligation, this is the point of being human. This is the point of living, is being here and having, receiving the privilege of investing in lives that we then journey this path together. And, and oddly enough, Jesus is making this point in this parable that's talking about money. So let's take a moment and let's jump into this parable and let's listen to what the Spirit has to say to us about how we take this principle that is written, uh, that, that, that is written down in the first century and in many ways, there are many things about it that are uh, only applicable in the first century and yet there is this profound truth that is being illustrated through Jesus's parable that we can then begin to walk out and apply and see the fruit of it in our lives as early as this afternoon. So it's a longer text, so I didn't put it in the notes for space reasons, but if you have your Bible, turn to Luke 16, it'll also be on the overhead here. He also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed, I'm too ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. Now, this is what's great about parables, especially when we're taught that, whenever we're used to just things being tied up in a really neat moralistic bow. If you look at Jesus' parables, he doesn't really seem all that preoccupied with providing us with that convenience. In the parable, he calls the manager dishonest. But he says... that that, that the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And then Jesus makes this statement, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. Verse nine, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth Who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this is a fascinating parable. Clearly, there's the crux of this 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 point that's being built up to that we see in verse 13, which is you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money because you're going to hate the one and you're going to despise the other. And, 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 and attached to that is, so therefore, the implication is... There is a way to utilize wealth and money in God's kingdom. It's just not based on the model of the kingdom of man. That is found up in verse 9, in which economic resources are invested into relational goals and motivations. And so, this is kind of the ideas that Jesus unpacks here in this parable. Now, it's really surprising. So, let's. Take a moment and just take the parable at face value. It's kind of shocking in a couple of ways. First of all is this. There is an idea, and it is not new. It has been since the dawn of creation where we tend to think of things like financial wealth as potentially a sign of God's blessing to us. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't express gratitude for God uh, uh, blessing us in whatever ways, whether it's through a windfall or through wealth or through wisdom or through the ability to work, all of these things. But what's interesting about Jesus, because in the Bible, that idea is there too, that there's this idea that material increase is connected to God's blessing. You see this a lot, particularly in the books of Moses, for example. But Jesus actually goes out of his way to make this strong statement and he actually calls money unrighteous. Now, have you ever read this parable in other translations? Because some of them get a little bit like one translation calls it filthy lucre. I wish that we were reading out of that one. I just wanted to say filthy lucre over and over this morning. But it's this idea that says for the person living for another world the citizen of another kingdom the commerce of this of, of the kingdom of man is something that we should approach with caution because it is unrighteous and it holds the key or it unlocks the door to all kinds of other oppression injustice and unrighteous throughout your world we have this imagery that heaven is paved with streets of gold and we take that and we interpret to mean oh well the roads must be pretty expensive in heaven when it's possible that imagery is supposed to say the thing you bled harmed fought and gave your life for on earth is the stuff we walk on in god's kingdom because it doesn't hold the same value as it does in the kingdom of man now, again, this is not anti-money. I am not saying we should be afraid of money. I am saying that following Jesus at some point does mean we get before the Lord and we begin to understand what does it look like to be faithful to Jesus while also living in the wealthiest country in the wealthiest time of human history. What are the responsibilities of stewardship that places on me as being part of the higher wealth percentage than the rest of the world in my generation. Is there anything that the spirit might say to how I utilize those funds? And I think this parable says, yes, there is. So, so number one, he flat out says that mammon is unrighteous and he doesn't just say it once. In fact, he also says it again in verse 11, if you then have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth. Well, this carries another idea even though unrighteous is the adjective that Jesus uses to describe money, he also says, and you have a responsibility as a son or daughter of the kingdom of light to learn how to engage in the use of resources in a way that is intended in the life uh, style of the kingdom of God. So, It's unrighteous. And then the second idea, which is really, I mean, at face value, it's like Jesus is just promoting the idea of use your money to get friends. Yes, he is. So let's unpack that a little bit because that's what he says. Mammon is unrighteous and we're to use mammon to make friends. So as we look at this, we've got verses 8 through 8a, and that's the parable of the steward, but then we read Jesus' interpretation and application of the parable in verses 18b through 13, and it all crescendos to the point of this section, which is verse 13. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So who are the characters? We've got the master in the parable. Then we've got the manager in the parable or the steward. And then we've got the customers of the master or the, those who were indebted to the master. And so the first thing this guy does is he goes and he cooks the books. He reduces all of, he reduces the invoices. It's particularly for those who owed quite a lot. And that's what's shocking about this, is you got this manager messing with the invoices and Jesus tells a parable that actually commends the behavior of this unrighteous steward. So what what exactly is going on? Well, uh, what is interesting about this verse, as we dig into it and kind of read the insights of uh, Bible scholars and commentators, what likely happened was not the manager was saying, hey, you cost me a profit, That was a good strategy on your your part. More than likely, what happened here didn't affect the master's profit at all. The benefit in being a manager is that you got to choose the rate of interest. So you could increase interest in order to increase your commission. And this happened all the time. In fact, this is why the tax collectors who were Jewish were so hated by their other citizens because they were taxing their, their kin and they were increasing the amount of interest that was required from the state so that then that increase in interest could become their commission. So not only were they the ones taking taxation from the people in order to give to the foreign, uh, the, the foreign government that was oppressing them, but they were also profiting from that. And this idea, this is a value that is part of the identity of the nation of Israel because there were lots of instructions for Israel, the covenant community of God, in how they were supposed to handle their financial relationships. One of them being this, you could not, charge interest to a fellow Israelite. So if you look at Exodus 22:25, it says, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. Leviticus says, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. Deuteronomy twenty-three nineteen says, you shall not charge interest on loans to your brother, interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that is lent for interest. Now, the gift of being able to align oneself to the supposed letter of the law, rather than the spirit of the law has some benefits. If you master the letter of the law, then you master the loopholes. Now, now, if you're, if you're gripped by the spirit of the law, your heart's not looking for loopholes. But if you're gripped by just doing the minimal external behavior modification that will get you the stamp of righteousness or holy, well, then you, you learn those so that you can still maintain your status of holiness, but still get around the law and disobey, disobey it. We do this sort of thing all the time. I will spare you the ethical dilemmas. Because for time's sake, but we are all familiar with this of being able to say, well, technically I didn't lie, technically I didn't disobey, and onward with the creative excuses. Well, this has been a human trait for millennia. We didn't invent this. So often, what would happen is the loans were intended uh, among the, the Israelites to be principal only, no interest. So what they would do is they would hide the interest in the loan. Thus, the principle itself actually included the interest. Now, in the parable, who is it that is making the loans? The master or the manager? The manager. He's setting the interest, he's setting the profit for himself the manager would have been authorized to represent, I mean, yeah, the manager would have been authorized to represent the master in all of the business matters. So in making the loans and hiding the interest, the manager could secure a commission for himself in the hidden interest. So when he's reducing the debt, what he's doing is forfeiting his commission. Now think about what we know here. He's a dishonest manager, He's been making profit off of a commission that was probably exorbitant to what was, would have been expected. This is why he can take the hit of reducing the bill, because all he's doing is is he's reducing his commission on it, so he's not in trouble with with, uh, stealing from the master, but he is using this as an edge. At one point, his life was about security through money. Then he's forced into a position where he realizes the money is not enough for me to maintain my security. I'm going to be jobless. I don't want to beg, and I can't dig. Therefore, out of of interest to myself, I need to use my position to manipulate good favor in relationships because when the security of money is gone, then the security of relationship will still be present. And so he shrewdly figures out how to do this in his favor. Thus, in reducing debt, he forfeited his commission because, was this because he had a change of heart? Did he wake up and realize, oh Lord, I've been so dishonest. And I heard what you uh, did with that boy, Zach's house the other day, the short man. And you know, you you ate dinner with him and he repented and he gave us money back. Is that what's going on in this parable? Absolutely not. The orientation of the manager's heart is not changing from self-interest to mankind interest or God interest. He is just simply switching the strategy by which he manifests his own self-interest. No, he forfeits his commission in order to create relationships that he could depend upon in the future when he's officially fired from his position. He's making a strategy change. He served God and used people, but now the path of his ongoing salvation in a literal sense, I'm not talking about heaven and hell, he- heaven and hell, heaven and hell, but The salvation of his ongoing life, the path of salvation was found in using money to serve people. So the revelation that he had to come to, not from an altruistic motivation, is he had to move from using people to uh, to serve money to using money to serve people. This is the core point of his paradigm shift that Jesus is commending. Losing his job could result in being jobless and homeless. So what exactly is Jesus commending? Well, number one, he's commended by the master because number one, he gave thought to the future. He, he knew that he was in trouble. He looked ahead. Number two, he realizes that future health is dependent on relationships, not on money. He was willing to forego profit in order to invest in relationships. Jesus commends the manager or the master in the parable commends the manager for understanding that economic resources should be invested in non-economic goals. That is what we do with mammon in the kingdom of God is that we recognize economic resources must be invested in non-economic goals goals. In fact, we could say it even more poignantly by saying in the kingdom of God, economic resources should be invested in relational goals. This is the idea that's hovering from the parable that Jesus is speaking here. And he is using it to illustrate the difference between what it looks like to serve money and hate God or to love God I mean, to serve God and to hate money. That's the conflict he creates there at the end. So what do we do with this? Well, one of the things is I think about this parable and I think about this story and I think about it going from their story to our story, to my story. Here are three st- thoughts that kind of emerge from looking at this parable. N- number one, we're called to invest in kingdom relationships. N- number two, we're called to live as a steward not as an owner. And number three, we are called very simply to serve God and to use money. So investing kingdom relationships, so look at what he says, something very interesting in the way Jesus used this. And so this is, this is one of the verses that maybe would be referenced if we were raising money for some sort of mission campaign. And um, I I don't think necessarily that's what it's talking about in the parable, but I do see that. I understand that as an application because what does Jesus say here in verse nine? And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you. Here it is into the eternal dwellings. Now, does it have application for raising money for missions? I, I think so. That's probably a fair way to interpret it, but it's not the only way to interpret it. It goes beyond just that to this larger paradigm, this larger vision that I am gifted with economic resources so that I can deepen the blessing of my human connections. Our money and wealth should be used to invest in relationships that are eternal. In other words, invest relationally for kingdom purposes. One of the phrases, the pithy Contemporary wisdoms and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you probably have heard it. I've never seen uh, a a U-Haul behind a hearse. Anybody ever heard that clever statement? In other words, they they couldn't take their possessions with them, or we just summarize it with the phrase "You can't take it with you." But what is interesting in this parable is Jesus says that's not true you actually can take it with you. As long as you use it to expand relational connection rather than material gain. In other words, the use of our wealth does transfer over to the other side. But it's connected to the extent to which we recognized that money was intended to be used as a tool to bless and invest in other human connections and friendships. So Jesus says this and use it to invest for kingdom purposes in relationships. The reason Jesus states this is because money will fail, and when it does, we need a network of relationships so that we are cared for. Now, I know that that point doesn't mean the same because we're way more self-sufficient than other groups would have been in other times of history. But from the context, from what Jesus is saying, is he's speaking from a context where relationships were not negotiable. They were a necessity for the ongoing survival of the individual. And so he, he, he gives us this call he, to, to, to utilize the money, to invest in that network of relationships. Because when, when the money fails, the relationships will still be present. We're called to love people and use money rather than to love money and use people. Because we have a gift that we are called to connect with the rest of humanity, which is this idea of salvation through reconciliation. Reconciliation. Now, certainly that can mean that our money can be used to support ministries doing kingdom work, but it also means that we can use our money or possessions to bless others as a tangible expression of God's kindness. Now, this is not going to be a prescription, for this is what you should do with your money. This is just, let's open up our hearts to the scriptures and at least be willing to sit before the Lord and say, Holy Spirit, is there something about the use of my resources that I just haven't taken the time to stop and inquire toward you about? What might you be calling me to be aware of in the way I utilize my resources in a way that I've either overlooked or neglected in the previous season of my life? Number two, live as a steward, not as an owner. Verse 10, he simply says this, 10 through 12. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Now of course this is true for every single area of our life the things that we tend to say my over my money my house my wife my children for the follower of Jesus the one of the things we wrestle through in order to cultivate a healthy spirituality is recognizing there is no my we are not owners we are stewards and that is true of our money. That is true of our, then the, the, the way we approach our most intimate relationships. It's even true of our own body and our own health. It doesn't belong to us. We have simply been entrusted with a stewardship. But what is interesting and what we don't over, want to overlook by making that general observation that is true in all areas of life. Jesus is being very specific about what area of life he's talking about, which is our filthy lucre, our money. What he is saying is there is a way of utilizing resources that invests into the character of who we are becoming. And when we utilize those resources as a means of ministry or a means of blessing in the lives of others, whether that's someone in our own family or someone in our community or or whatever need might come across our way, there is something that happens in our character because we are defying that part of our human nature that longs for the security that wealth can provide. And in that security, it divides our loyalty to the trust that we give to God and the living Christ. And therefore, one of the ways that we are free from being held in bondage to that false security is by having it with an open hand and being willing then to utilize it to bless the lives of other people because we recognize it doesn't belong to us. We are a steward and the invitation to increase stewardship isn't to make more money, but to become a more faithful steward. That's what Jesus is pointing to. We cannot have an unhealthy relationship with money and possess a healthy soul. That's the tension. I'm not saying we can't have access to money. I mean, I did that whole poverty thing for a while. That did not work out very good, particularly after I got married. And then I realized my call to poverty was just laziness, not really righteous conviction. Anyway, enough about me processing my own stuff in front of you. Um, uh, but uh, see, I lost with, oh, but but we do have to contend with this. See, oftentimes we we may be in this struggle of faith, this crisis of. of of, of being kind of feeling like we're morally lost and we'll do these inventories and even you can go online and find Christian character inventories that will ask you questions about have you lied, have you cheated, have you stolen, have you lusted. you, You know what you will never find or I've yet to find is an evaluation tool that helps the believer investigate their relationship with money. You don't have to have it to struggle with it. In fact, many people who don't have it actually struggle with it more because it's the constant preoccupation of their time and energy. And at some point, I'm not saying what you, I'm not telling you or dictating you what you should do with your money. What I am saying that to mature in our faith, we must all have a moment where we take time to be aware what is our relationship with money and resources because that relationship has a direct impact on our overall spiritual health. And so even if I stop cussing and dancing too sensually and I never watch a rated R movie unless it's about the life of Christ, I get all of that down, but I'm really, really still living for the security that wealth can provide me, that morality does not transfer into spiritual maturity. All that morality does is allow me to have a false security in my self-righteousness. It's not because I need to go deeper. I'm not saying therefore dance sensually and cuss. That's not my point. My point is you have to take a moment to where you are really sitting before the Lord and said, Lord, help me see what's going on with my attachment to my money. How much am I driven by my insecurity when it comes to wealth and resources? And how is that drivenness affecting the state of my soul? And how does that primary uh, goal or priority, how does that impact the way I view and interact with other people? We cannot have an unhealthy relationship with money and yet deceive ourselves in thinking that we can have a healthy soul. And then he says this amazing thing that true spiritual riches are entrusted as we grow in faithfulness as financial stewards. Rather than worship money, we're called to use money as an act of worship. Take time listening to the living Jesus and he will instruct you on how he's calling you to bless others with the use of resources. This is not an application point where we create a rule for everyone. It is consider this, go back before the presence of Jesus and inquire of your Lord if he has intentions and plans for your resources that you simply haven't thought about yet. And then number three, the, the idea that we take away is that we're called to serve God and use money. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, how are we called to respond to this text? My concern is what we're used to is hearing a topic like this and then being told about how we're supposed to spend our money. Was the point of this sermon encouraging people to reconsider their spending no not really that that's not my point here this morning what i do want to encourage you to do is to respond by examining your heart now in that maybe the spirit will call you to examine your spending but if you just Say yeah, I gotta gotta be a little bit more generous. Let's rearrange the budget. Let's create another uh, category for generosity. Look, that's a great first step. I'm not condemning that, but I am saying that response misses the point because it's not about can you adjust your behavior to include more spending? It's have you examined your heart so you have a working knowledge of your relationship to resources, particularly in comparison to your relationship in entrusting your life to God. Because I think that is the point that Jesus is bringing to the surface. The point is not to fear money or even to condemn money, but the point is to love God. Is my life driven by the pursuit of financial security or the joyful pursuit of a life centered on reconciliation and compassion? That's the question. We cannot fool ourselves into believing that we can live for multiple sinners, my friends. We cannot. In fact, Jesus reinforces it, doesn't he? In verse 13, you cannot serve two masters, only one. There are many masters who enslave, but only one who liberates. Seek the kingdom, trust the king, and he will add the rest. So would you stand and as the worship team comes forward to lead us in communion, I wanna leave you with these thoughts. As we've said before, it's often said about money, you can't take it with you. However, Jesus says that you can if you use money to invest in blessing others and kingdom work that blesses others. So as we get ready to come to the Lord's table, as you are thinking and you're pondering over this parable and over this text, I simply want to invite you to use this space to examine the center of your life. Where are you living from? Draw near to the living Christ and ask him to show you what he's calling you to do. This is not intended to become meddlesome as though the pastor is going to be investigating your spending. Although I've seen things like that done in churches. That is not the point. The point isn't for us to feel bad if we have a window unit in addition to our central heat and air. All of these other things that we get preoccupied with. It is simply to say that part of your discipleship journey is maturing in your relationship to resources. And that doesn't mean you have to go sell your favorite possession and send it to Sudan or whatever. But it does mean that. The God that you know loves you and is for you has happy intentions for the way he may be leading you to invest your resources. That doesn't have to be feared, but if we're not careful, we can become so preoccupied, we never bring the question before him. So the question is simply this, Lord, is there something that the spirit is wanting to say to me in regards to my relationship with money and resources and the security that I invest in those things, if so, here I am, Lord. I'm willing to listen. Is there something you're calling me to do? You may be holding.